Yesterday, the U.S. observed Indigenous Peoples Day. Conservation has a long, messy history in regards to Indigenous rights. Historically, and unfortunately still today, conservation often involves white folks with fancy degrees parachuting into various parts of the world to get the data that they need that supports their careers and their goals, with little true collaboration for the Indigenous with the Indigenous folks who have known, loved, and stewarded the land and its inhabitants for generations. We hope that conversations on this podcast has, have helped you think a bit more deeply about collaboration, community, and conservation in your backyard and beyond. Today's episode features Shelby Holmer, who runs the Mako Sika Canine Search and Rescue Team to serve reservation communities. Parts of this episode remind us of the generational trauma inflicted upon Native communities through colonization and colonizers from Europe. At the same time, this episode also reminds us of the resilience and self-reliance of these, of these communities. No one should have to prove their resilience the way that Indigenous communities have over and over and over again. I recently moved to Corvallis, Oregon, which is home to the Kalapuya peoples, a group of diverse tribes that honestly I know very little about. I'm going to spend this week educating myself. A few of the resources that I've explored just in the past month on these topics include, um, finally, reading the book Braiding Sweetgrass, um, which is a book so excruciatingly lovely and loving that I was basically constantly in tears reading it. Um, there's a great series of episodes from the podcast Behind the Bastards, which go over Christopher Columbus and how um, precisely awful he was. He's uh, I didn't quite realize how much worse than just like um, kind of your average explorer. Uh, Chrissy Columbus was. Um, so if you still feel the need to learn more about colonizers and colonization uh, and want to celebrate Christopher Columbus in the best way possible, learn about how awful he is. Um, or was, thank goodness. Dr. Ray Wynn Grant's podcast, Going Wild, had an episode recently titled The Untold Story of California's Mighty Predator, which goes in-depth on a single topic about a conflict between conservation and indigenous rights and cultural practices. Um, I also would recommend giving the Instagram account Decolonial Atlas a follow. They've got all sorts of fascinating maps about linguistics, land rights, and so much more. There are so many amazing resources out there to continue educating yourself. So I hope you get out and find a medium and a topic that captures your imagination and opens your mind. And without further ado, let's get to the episode with Shelby Homer. So before we get into this interview, we are going to be doing our science highlights. So today we read Lauren Hopkins's thesis for the University of Waikato, which is titled Canine Scent Detection of Invasive Brown Bullhead Cat Catfish, Amerianus nebulosus in lake water samples. So to quote from the paper itself, quote, catfish pose a major threat to New Zealand's freshwater ecosystems, preying on and competing with native, native species for food, and decreasing water clarity through bioturbation and nutrient release. Early detection of the spread of catfish is crucial as it al allows for containment and eradication measures to be set up, preventing the establishment of new catfish populations. However, traditional methods such as visual surveying, netting, and electrofishing are time-consuming and resource-intensive, resulting in high costs and restricting the number of locations that can be surveyed." End quote. So this project recruited four pet dogs for the project, one male and one female three-year-old Springer Spaniel Border Collie Cross, one 10-year-old female lab mix, and one three-year-old female lab. To continue quoting from the paper, the aim of this research was to determine whether domestic dogs could determine the presence of catfish in lake water samples at a biomass concentration equivalent to 43.5 kilograms per hectare 
which is assuming that the water is about two meters deep, a concentration consistent with the estimated population of catfish in New Zealand lakes. And I'm sorry for everyone at home, Norbert is chiming in here. My cat. Um, continuing the quote, the first stage of the experiment determined whether dogs could detect the presence of catfish in dechlorinated water samples at a biomass concentration of, again, 43.5 kilograms per hectare. Water samples were collected from tanks containing a standard catfish biomass concentration of 15.5 grams per liter, which is equivalent to 38,700 kilograms per hectare, so obviously a lot more than what you would find in the wild, and then diluted to 311 kilograms per hectare. As the dogs achieved discrimination criteria, the sample concentration was pro progressively decreased. All three dogs that continued in the project were able to detect the pre presence of catfish at a biomass concentration of 43.5 kilograms per hectare. And then in the next stage of the experiment, they determined whether d domestic dogs could detect the presence of catfish in lake water samples. So the lake water samples were collected from catfish absent, Lake Rotoma, and spiked with catfish aquaria. As the dogs achieved discrimination criteria, the catfish concentration was again progressively diluted. The majority of the dogs in the study successfully detected the presence of catfish at the goal biomass in lakes water samples, with one dog actually successfully detecting catfish at a concentration equivalent to 1.55 kilograms per hectare, so quite a bit less than the goal. In New Zealand, it's highly unlikely that significant environmental impacts would occur with catfish biomass at 1.55 kilograms per hectare. However, targeted eradication of a population density of this size would be highly advisable and may be feasibly managed depending on available resources, size of the target water body, and its connection to other waterways. The findings in the study indicate the potential utility of dogs in early detection and management of invasive freshwater species. According to the theory of generalization, the performance of these dogs may be generalized to different lakes and different biomass equivalent concentrations without specific training on those lakes or concentrations. However, it would be important to test for this generalization in future research as differences in stimuli can affect generalization with gen less generalization occurring as stimuli become increasingly dissimilar from the original stimulus. Whew, end quote. So overall, really cool paper. Um, we are always excited to see stuff where they're kind of pushing the limits of dogs, particularly working um, kind of in creative ways with invasives, or in this case, working um, with water samples. That's always something that is tricky, and it's cool to see people kind of pushing the envelope with this. Um, and one of the things that I did note is they didn't kind of specifically do any discrimination work, kind of making sure that the dogs could tell the difference between catfish and whatever New Zealand's most closely related freshwater species may be. But if the dogs were able to detect the catfish in um, these training samples, uh, of the lake samples, presumably there was some fish um, fish odor in the lake samples that hadn't had catfish involved. Um, I also would be interested in kind of ensuring that they, they hadn't accidentally trained the dogs to alert to any of their collection um, materials. That was something I didn't see where they were doing controls with different container types or, you know, having uh, extracted water from a similar aquarium and put it into the container that didn't contain catfish odor, et cetera. But overall, really cool stuff, especially for, a, you know, just quote unquote, a thesis. Um, they, they did a really good job. Definitely a paper worth checking out. Do you want to help support this podcast and meet your learning goals as a conservation detection dog handler? Then sign up for our Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you get to support this podcast and earn the perks of asking our guests questions and joining monthly get-togethers online. At higher levels of support, you get even more perks. 
at kind of the highest level. This includes a private 30-minute coaching call with me over video chat once a month to go over your training goals with your dog in detail. Depending on your level of support, patrons also get to access a book club and group coaching calls each month. You can see details on all of those tiers uh, on our Patreon website. There's really no better way to show your love for what we do while also furthering your own career in a flexible, self-directed way. Since starting our Patreon, we've had the absolute joy of watching several of our members go from excited amateurs to paid professional handlers with their dogs. We couldn't be more proud of them, and it's such a joy to share knowledge with this amazing community. Join us at patreon.com slash canine conservationists. All right. So today I am very excited and grateful to be talking to Shelby Homer about a really important topic. We're talking about Indigenous-led search and rescue dog programs, particularly as it relates to missing and murdered Indigenous folk. Well, Shelby, welcome to the podcast. I'm, uh, I'm really excited to have you here and get to talk to you about such an important topic. For sure. I'm, I'm, it's my pleasure to be able to educate and um, have people informed about what's going on in yeah. our communities. Yeah, no, we're grateful for your time and your expertise. So why don't we start out with kind of laying the groundwork for anyone who's not familiar, or we have a lot of listeners who aren't in North America, so they may just, yeah, not know what is going on with missing and murdered Indigenous relatives at this point. What What is that problem? Why is it a problem? So missing and murdered Indigenous um, awareness started within maybe the past 20 years or so. But um, the basis of it is over a hundred years of Native American tribal members have been taken off reservations and placed in boarding schools across the country. After finishing schools, uh, they come back to the reservation and most of them experience trauma while off uh, their homelands and develop like substance abuse, uh, trying to cope with um, some of the experiences they've had. And so therefore um, that trauma gets passed on down to generation to generation and in forms of substance abuse, domestic violence, mental illness. Um, and we also battle with like an ident- identity crisis in a way mm-hmm. because we're having to learn our culture all over again and the language. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and still live in modern day society. So, um, a lot of what's going on is the economy is functional, but limited on, on tribal ground. So, uh, these tribal members will travel to nearby town cities to find employment to provide for their families. Um, by doing so, sometimes they lose communication with family members or will end up associating with, um, wrong people. Mm-hmm. and turn up missing and then uh, human trafficking has also become a major problem along with um abductions of young men and women wow yeah no and i'm glad that you zoomed out for us and talked about how this is kind of a, a generational problem that was caused by government policies and leads to to this so um Yeah. So we've got a lot of people from indigenous communities, both on and off reservations who are going missing. Some of them are murdered. Um, So is that where you got your start in search and rescue because of this problem? Or um, how did you kind of end up in the world of search and rescue? 
So, um, well, how I ended up in the world of search and rescue was, you know, coming to an obedience class and then finding out that the instructor had, um, had a team, a local team there in the community. So then she seen potential in my dog and another pup, which happened to be siblings or litter mates. And the owner and I actually came from the same town, um, by chance. It was, it was crazy coincidence, but, um, that's how we started our careers in search and rescue. Um, but that was off reservation at the time Mm -hmm. we, we did off reservation search and rescue for quite some years, but, um, when we and started to help, um, our tribe, there was actual case where, um, a 62 year old woman was abducted. Oh my God. Uh, in the middle of a night on June 15, 2021, um, she had resided in Sweetwater, Arizona. So at the time authorities were out there doing the work, trying to figure out what happened. And, um, we weren't deployed of course, because we were a state organization. Um, but we did reach out to contacts and told them, Hey, we're here. You know, we can assist if mm-hmm. whenever you need, whenever you just call, we'll come. Um, and it was day after day at next, you know, it was like two weeks later, but every day on our local, um, Navajo radio station, I was listening to updates uh-huh. and would get with Bernadine and say, Oh, this is what they're doing. This is what's going on. Um, so at that point I made a decision to contact the son mm-hmm. and told him who we were, what kind of work we do, what we could bring to the table. And he wanted us immediately to come out oh, and help. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So I got a hold of Bernadine. We we got a hold of the team, but unfortunately we were the only ones available at the time. So we went out and we asked them, where do you want us? You know, where do you need us to be? So we went out and we helped in um, some areas around the residence. Um, but on the drive home, the drive home, we thought this is a problem. This is yeah. something that's hitting home for us because you know, we could have been out right away, like day one with the dogs and eliminating problematic areas. Like there was some terrain that was treacherous. There was cliff sides, you know, Mm -hmm. we could have from day one could have eliminated so many areas. And, and luckily, you know, they were safe and, or they kept safety as a priority and they, nobody got hurt, you know, because this was all family members that were out there at that time. So, um, the drive home, we decided, you know what, we're going to have to branch off our state team and Mm -hmm. we're going to have to collaborate something where we're able to cover multiple states. Where can we do that? Where can we get that type of training? Then we realized NASAR is the best way to go. Yeah. So I was already living in South Dakota at the time. Um, but then I realized that, you know, we needed to continue this work, not only on the Navajo reservation, but in other tribal communities. Um, I got my niece, Avery Begay involved and her boyfriend. Um, they came on board and we just started going. And the more we were out there helping, the more 
community members and tribal members started to reach out and say, Hey, I've, you know, had a loved one missing for this long and we don't know mm-hmm. where to start. We don't know how to conduct the search, you know, where we've been talking to investigators, but you know, they're backed up. So we started to just help slowly. And um, now it's grown like, and we're up to 10 members wow. in the four corners area. And um, just this year alone, we we've gone on 21 missions. Wow. I believe. Yeah. And so I really like to be there on boots on the ground and, and assist with um, Bernadine. But um, of course I'm in South Dakota trying to start the same thing here, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I do have meetings with them on a regular and um, keep ties with them on like what's going on, the cases, what type of um, searches they're going on. Um, so it's, it's, it's great work for sure. And we're making a big difference and, building those connections with law enforcement also mm-hmm. and DIA and FBI um, is so crucial because in the beginning, it was very hard to get, get those things going, those relationships going. Um, so we're definitely better off now than when we first started out two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to come back to talking about kind of some of the jurisdictional issues that are really unique to the reservation. But first I want to go back. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Bernadine and your puppies and kind of how um, Four Corners got started um, just to give us a little bit more groundwork on the dogs and, um, and Four Corners. So I currently run a German Shepherd dog named Shunka uh, that does air scent and live find. Uh, she's at the age of seven, slowly reaching retirement age. And so is her litter mate, Trigger, who is um, currently the canine for Bernadine, um, my teammate. Um, although we were open to different types of disciplines, um, our cultural uh, differences kind of made it uh, difficult to do HRD or human remains or any other type mm-hmm. of um, discipline. So in our culture, it's a bad omen to purchase pets. So when we first started, we we had a friend that had these puppies and that's where uh-huh. we got them from. She actually worked with Bernadine and then worked with my ex-husband at the time. So that's how we got the puppies. Um so a lot of times we end up bartering or trading of something of value in order to get pets, whether, whether it's a cat, dog, pony, goat, you know, that type uh-huh. of thing. So um, in my culture, it's also a bad omen to have human remains or living or dead. Um, we decided the only way to participate in this canine search and rescue team would be to commit to a life find discipline. But that is going to change now, you know, since a majority of our deployments are recovering subjects instead of rescuing. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And then we recently found that product that absorbs odor without having to handle or store human remains. And that's going to make a tremendous impact on being able to assist families. Yeah, that's huge. I love the way that technology is coming together for that because yeah, I mean if you're if your culture doesn't allow you to handle or store human remains, which is very reasonable, um 
but you want to be able to help your community those um yeah those tubes are going to be really really amazing for that so then um tell us a little bit more about kind of the jurisdictional issues that are particular to reservations i know it's not uncommon to kind of have problems with getting search and rescue canine teams out fast enough but it seems like that's a particular pain point for you guys at this point oh definitely so the jurisdictional issues um surface from the sovereign nation being within a nation and um there's always that disconnect in communication or i i honestly think that it could be better you know that we're able to work together as a unit um to to have that open book when it comes to um people missing or things happening within the community where we're needing assistance to further um get justice that type of thing um so that's why a lot of times when a state team or like a team that's within a city have they get deployed by either sheriff's department or state police um for whatever reason, the reservation is different. It's like dealing with like another country almost sometimes. Right. So yeah. um, it's just a matter of working towards building those relationships and not maybe taking offense to the possible outcome. You know, mm. sometimes people are so used to their own way of doing things that mm. they're not willing to change you know, they're so comfortable. Yeah. Therefore, I think that once, once things start to change and, um, we're able to adjust, I think it'd be better off for everybody. Yeah. It seems like you're in a tough spot with, you know, having live fine dogs, which really, that means you need to be getting out there as soon as someone is identified as missing because, you know, every hour that they're out there, the chance that they are still alive and are still findable, you know, especially if we're talking about um, human trafficking, you know, these people are, they're going in cars, um, I would assume most of the time. So you really have to be able to work fast. And it seems like those jurisdictional issues are getting in the way. And then, you know, you've said, sounds like your next dog might be HRD, where time is less of the essence, but we're still talking about, you know, really remote areas with, you know, all sorts of predators and other things that could still make it extremely challenging if you're not able to get out there quickly to make a recovery. Oh, definitely. So even the environmental um, aspect of it versus weather, um, like you said, animals, you know, there's so many animals, there's bears and mm-hmm you name it, they're out there and moving things around because that's their element, you know, and we're just visitors <laughs> to yeah. them. So things change so, so fast. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. So it sounds like, I mean, it seems like you guys are keeping very busy with 21 deployments. We're already on August. We're only on August 3rd. So there's still what, four full months left in the year. That's that's a lot. Um, so That's what are some of, of the other um, gaps that you're seeing in, you know, kind of helping indigenous communities address these needs? Uh, you know, what else do you need? What uh, what are you looking forward to? Um, I did make contact with a lot of um, advocates 
um, MMIP groups um, that assist families and victims. And believe it or not, I get the most support out of these people. Mm-hmm. And they, they're so comfortable and they're so eager to learn about search and rescue. So I'm really looking forward to making more connections with these people um, so that we're able to assist families directly. Um, I do support law enforcement. I know that they're overwhelmed and overworked. And mm-hmm. um, I completely understand where they're coming from. But then again, you know, we, we still have the work to do. So I'm super excited about making these connections with these people and um, continuing to grow. I've actually just started working with um, our local emergency management department. Uh-huh. And so I'm super excited about that because then I'm able to get volunteers or find people that are interested in um, wanting to learn more about search and rescue and, um, ICS systems and framework. And because Mm -hmm. that's so crucial to finding these people, um, making sure that we're able to do it productively and safely so that we're able to give that subject or victim justice. You know, it's all about scene preservation and, um, not tampering with evidence, you know? And so a lot of these families have members just out there not knowing what to look for not knowing um what to do when they've come across something um whether it's a subject or article or you know um a scene so it's going to be amazing to to work with people that i'm Mm -hmm. wanting to learn yeah it seems like training and getting that kind of community resilience um, and self-sufficiency up and running is going to be so huge because again, I mean, between all these jurisdictional issues, between the fact that reservations are often just, you know, they're far from urban centers in most cases. um, Yeah. Being able to have more training and self-sufficiency coming from within the community is going to be beneficial on so many levels. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So um, we've got a couple of questions from patrons here. So Joanna asked whether or not you prefer like local or um, local. Yeah, basically local breeds for this sort of work. Um, Like if there are kind of uh, breeds or groups of dogs that are native to, um, you know, the Navajo reservations or anything like that. Is that what's preferred or what sort of dogs are you working with? Actually, um, there's no preference. And mm-hmm. type of dogs, you know, of course, we deal with terrains that are very remote and desolate. Um, a lot of the Navajo Reservation is desert. So having to find a dog that's able to withstand and, and be active um, within those environments is very crucial. But, mm-hmm. you know, we we're very open to different types of breeds of dogs. We just so happen to end up with German shepherds. And so far they've been working great, you know, even in the desert, they're like trigger. He's huge. You know, he's like 80 plus pounds or something, but he, he does great. You know, and my dog, she's actually like 50 pounds. She's pretty petite and and she moves very well, um, out in the field. So we're, we're always open to different breeds and, um, 
Yeah. Yeah. That sounds similar to what we do as long as the dog has the drive to do the job and physically is capable of doing the job comfortably and safely, then yeah, we'll, we'll take anything. Um, so you kind of touched on this. It sounds like the Navajo reservation. Yeah. We've got, um, desert canyons, um, cacti heat. Um, and I know, you know, we've got reservations from, you know, corner to corner of this, this country. Um, and we're, you know, we're obviously being pretty U S centric in this podcast because you and I are both U S based. So what are some of the environmental or search conditions that you all encounter that may require special considerations or training? I believe like the more wooded areas, more mountain terrains, um, we are considering getting some like rope training, um, to be able to go down cliffs or up, um, those type of environments we're very unfamiliar with. So we're, we're looking towards that. And, um, we actually like where I'm at right now is more grassland and hilly. We do have some woodland and desert type of areas, but, um, for the most part where I'm at, it's, it's pretty moderate, you know, where mm-hmm. we're able to get in and out of places, um, safely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's nice. And again, I'm sure it varies a little bit. The only, the only missing person search I've ever been part of was I volunteered for a search for a missing indigenous woman up in, um, Montana and there, you know, I just remember kind of standing on the edge of the road, looking at the transect that I was supposed to walk that just went like straight into the forest, down into a river valley, and then back up a hill again. And, you know, it was one of those things where I think we had all day to try to walk like a mile. They had tons and tons of people out because we were trying to walk like a meter or two apart and really do this like intense. Oh my gosh, you guys were doing a grid search. Yeah, yeah, it was intense. And I just remember looking at this and being like, God, I wish I had my dog and that my dog actually knew how to do this sort of thing um, <laughs> because this is going to be terrible. And it, and it was, um, but, you know, we were able to, you know, with the training that they gave us, like hopefully clear that area and say, okay, we had people touch pretty much every square inch of this and there's nothing here, but it was, it was intense and daunting, like looking out there and thinking, Gosh, that uh, and that woman had been missing for I think two years to the day, which is why there was such a big effort out that day. Um, yeah, that, you know, with the grizzlies and the snow and wolves and black bears and you know pine martens. Like it doesn't even have to be a big scary thing. That you know, it just felt like it's a real needle in a haystack situation. Oh, um, definitely. We we deal with that all the time, and yeah. uh, the biggest part too is uh, not having enough information yeah you know not having a last point known or a last Mm -hmm. point seen um those type of crucial um questions are never answered sometimes and it's like where do you start where where do you you don't want to tell them no that you you can't assist but you know um you try to just puzzle piece everything that you can together just to give some hope to them just to give some comfort in some way, you know, I'm here to help you at least try and make effort. So, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that was, I think that particular woman was last seen at a bar. So obviously we weren't searching, you know, we knew she wasn't there anymore and, you know, it was in Missoula. So, you know, then you were just, 
kind of looking around Montana and obviously the, the investigators are a little bit more organized than this, but, you know, kind of looking around Montana and being like, well, it's the fourth biggest state in the country. Uh, and there weren't any state lines crossed, but like, okay, where is reasonable to search and where do we have reason to check? And, you know, when you've got a big push with that many volunteers or, you know, dog teams or anything like that, how do you, how do you direct them appropriately? It's, I mean, it's a gargantuan task. Oh, definitely. We've had to adjust so much. You know, we, we, we've learned, um, a certain type of, uh, way of doing search and rescue from textbook. Right. Uh But when you get out there in the field and there's places like this, like, of course, on the reservation, it's, it's real remote. There's not a lot of information. Where do you start? Where do you pinpoint things? So, um, strategy has definitely had to change when it came to searching for individuals here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, again, it's just, it's such a, such an intense job, um, or, uh, endeavor to, to partake in. So the last question I've got written down here is from Jackie and she asks how dog people can help getting involved with the missing and murdered indigenous relatives, movement or you know is activism helpful can they join search and rescue communities is there anything that people can do remotely if they want to try to help out but don't live near a reservation yeah yeah for sure um people can assist in many different ways you know just obviously you see these um flat you'll see these flyers going around and you'll see um activism you know there's yeah all types of get-togethers um parades or just getting together to help assist families in their in their time of grieving um being able to make those connections and support in that way would be great too um and if you are in the search and rescue field you know reaching out to um the tribal law enforcement or maybe some emergency management programs within the the reservation and offer assistance and let them know what you're able to bring to the table is, is definitely important and would be much appreciated. I'm sure. Yeah, no, of course it seems like, you know, building connections and just seeing, seeing where you can help and coming and, you know, offering your skills. And that sounds like exactly what you're doing. And then it also sounds like, you know, be prepared for it to be a long road to actually get out there. You know, you're not going to show up with your business card and get to go out and save the day the next day. Definitely. It is time consuming and I still deal with problems, you know, when it comes to making those connections with like local law enforcement, Um, I tell them that I'm here to assist and I still have not yet been utilized to, Mm -hmm. um, help with searches. And there's been a couple actually here, um, not too far from where I'm at. And every time I reach out, I reach out like, Hey, I'm here, I'm, I'm willing to help, but, um, it never happens. Yeah. That's gotta be frustrating and, and challenging and, yeah, to have put so much time and effort into helping train your dog and train yourself to try to help um, help your community and then to not be able to be called in in time or not be called in at all. Yeah, so 
I, I've kind of switched gears since then. Um, and that's where I'm working with more um, MMIW groups. Yeah. Um, I said that emergency management program, um, people that are willing to make the efforts and dedicate some time to learning and wanting to improve um, their skills when it comes to search and rescue. So I've really had to juggle some things and, and make mm-hmm. those um, priorities known that this is something that's very important to do um, versus me just going out and being a resource, a canine resource. Um, I feel that it's better that we have more team members rather than just going out with my dog. Yeah, of course. Um, Cause yeah, I think, you know, one of the big things you can do with the dog and, and really with search and rescue in general is go out and confirm where someone isn't, but the more boots you've got on the ground, um, the better I would imagine. So is there anything that you wanted to expand on or clarify or that I didn't ask you about that you wanted to come back to? Yeah. So, um, you know, there was, I believe a question about sensitivity. Are there areas of sensitivity? Like when, um, let's say a local, um, search and rescue team comes and assists on a reservation, like what questions you should be asking? What should you know? Um, I do believe that there's cultural sensitivities Mm -hmm. and there are still ceremonial um, areas that are still active today. So when we have to go out and search, we still have to keep in mind that, um, there are sensitivities when it comes to stepping on certain grounds or Mm -hmm. approaching certain places and respect, respectively asking, you know, permission, Mm -hmm. um, is always good and courteous about, places that you're not familiar with and just you know when you're when you're living around indigenous communities kind of um educating yourself on Mm -hmm. those cultural practices would be great too because it shows that you've made those initiatives to Mm -hmm. to learn and it's it's very respected in a sense so i think that's very important and it's very important for other people to know that Yeah. I mean, you're dealing with the fact that someone is missing a loved one. It's, you know, the least you can do is come in with respect and humility and ask permission and be willing to learn and, you know, try to do some research ahead of time to expect to know what to expect and to know, you know, oh my gosh, okay, if I see anything that looks like pottery, I shouldn't pick it up. Um, Or yeah, just even knowing if there's and you, you know, I, I suppose people probably wouldn't know all of these things any, you know, on their first tribe, their first time out. But if you are routinely working in an area, you know, getting to know what is of cultural significance um, or what certain symbols may be important, I would imagine would also be really helpful. Oh, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, You're absolutely right. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, yeah. Anything else then, Shelby? I don't believe so. Okay. Well, everyone at home, thank you so much for listening. Um, Shelby, where can people find your organizations online? And is there any way that people, um, I don't know if you're a nonprofit, can people donate um, if they're so inclined? 
So as of right now, Four Corners Canine Search and Rescue um, is a nonprofit organization. Um, they will be having their website up shortly. They Probably by the end of August, the website should be up. Um, but we are on Facebook and Instagram. And then my organization, Makoshicha Canine Search and Rescue, is also on Facebook and um, Instagram. Excellent. And we'll be sure to link all of that in the show notes. So don't crash your car trying to take notes right now. Um, and as always, you can find everything else you need in the show notes as well. We've got transcripts. We're working on getting summaries written up as well for every episode. So you don't have to read the whole transcript or listen to the whole episode. I don't know why you don't want to listen to the episode, but you don't have to. Um, and you can always find, you know, mugs and t-shirts and lunch boxes and all sorts of great stuff, as well as sign up for our Patreon and our course all at canineconservationists.org. We'll be back next week. Bye.